If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you or you would like to avoid just the distraction of your cell phone and using the Bible on there, there's a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you and you can find Matthew chapter 8, the passage that we'll be reading on page 762 of that Bible. If you are new to the preaching of Christian preachers, you'll find that sometimes it's just very confusing. And that's not just because we are imperfect and confusing ourselves, although that is certainly a huge portion of it, but also just by the the manner of what we have to say, things can be confusing. During one sermon, you will hear calls for people to be faithful to the Lord, to do as the Lord has commanded, to listen to his words, to put it into practice. Many instinctively hearing these things as a command, as they most certainly are, will think, these are the things that I must do to be in the good grace of God. Thus they seek to do the will of God so that God would be kind to them. But this will conflict in them with other messages that they will hear, that there is a grace that is given to God's people, a grace that is given to all people, completely outside of anything that they have done. The Lord grants blessing and forgiveness by his own good gift on people. This is the good news of his grace, and many, many will believe on it. So hearing such good news, being content that grace from God is all that they need, they will do so quite apart from any sort of work at all. Indeed, they will begin to think that any obedience or any work somehow is a denial of the grace of God that has been given to them. Both are wrong, but they are inevitable places that people go. The first are wrong because they think that grace and kindness are a response of God to us, which they are not. The second are wrong because they think that grace and kindness don't deserve a response, which they do. You are not saved by the things that you do. You're not saved by your words. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by obedience or steadfastness, your doctrine or your sincerity. Nor is your salvation divorced from any of those things, as though they didn't matter or as though they had no consequence at all in your life. Rather, we understand that the order these things happen is quite important. Once you comprehend the grace and the goodness and the kindness of God, the response is faith and faithfulness. It is meant to be both helpful and comforting and motivating as well as convicting over us. And today we we come to this passage of Scripture, now leaving the Sermon on the Mount behind, where we have the beginning of Matthew recounting specific miracles of Jesus. And these three miracles that are in front of us are helpful in that they show us precisely the order of these sort of events. These miracles form a larger section from chapter 8 through chapter 9 of ten miracles in all, five in each chapter, with some sort of doctrinal teaching about discipleship sprinkled in. Today we will just look at the first three of these in the 17 verses from 8.1 to 8.17. If you would read in your copy of the Word of God with me this morning, let us read of the miracles of our God and hear within it the salvation that he proclaims. Matthew writes, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of our God. Before we go to consider this word, we should ask a brief question, which I think is of some interest to us. Why should we consider these stories so important? Why do we consider the miracles of Jesus so important? Because if we are honest, we don't expect many of these to happen to us. I think that I am more open than others, certainly more than many to such miracles happening today. I don't believe that miracles have been closed off, but I've never seen one. I've never even really truly heard of one outside of it happening through some sort of natural means. I've never heard of anyone laying hands on somebody and raising them from the dead. I've never heard an actual story from my own lifetime of people having diseases removed from them, cancer removed from them by the laying on of hands. This thing just doesn't happen very often if at all. Why take so much time to focus on the healing ministry of Jesus? Why take so much time, 10 different miracles, 10 different stories to focus on? Why not just collapse them all together and say, Jesus did miracles, these say something about who he is, and move on? I think that there's three reasons before we come to our text today that I want to put forward before you. And I know that this seems like I'm sneaking three extra points into my sermon in front of you, and that's basically what I'm doing. So first, Miracles help to prove his deity. They don't prove it in the fact that he did miracles, because there's a lot of people in the scripture who do miracles, but none do them like Jesus does them. No one just heals of his own volition. All the healings that we get, all the miracles we get are from prophets who speak according to the word of God. But Jesus, of his own volition, heals who he wants to, and quite clearly, in our passage before us, at a distance. His, his miracles are unlike the miracles found anywhere else. He does them as only God can do them. Second, as we will see as we go through our passage today, 
Such miracles speak to his compassion and his care for people. Jesus seems to act just fundamentally out of concern and well-being of others, especially those, as we will see, or are looked down upon by others. The miracles show just how compassionate Jesus is. He doesn't just talk about compassion. He doesn't just talk about being kind. Talk about loving your enemies. He walks through with that. Third, the reason why these miracles are so important to us as they speak to us directly and openly about our salvation. These miracles, these healings, are almost like a preview of our final salvation. They are, in our lingo, this would be completely foreign to the Bible, but they're trailers for our final salvation. They show us bits and pieces of what our lives are going to be like when we are raised in health and in wholeness. They tell us something quite important about what Jesus has come to do for us something that we will return to at the end of our time this morning. What do these things say specifically? What does the healing of Jesus do for us? The first thing is that the healing of Jesus drives our faithfulness. The first miracle shows us that the healing of Jesus drives our faithfulness. Leprosy in those days is not quite the disease that we make it out to be today. We only think of one thing as leprosy today, and that is full-blown leprosy. But back then, any sort of skin disease, skin discolorization might have been considered leprosy. They were kind of all bunched together because they couldn't necessarily tell the bad leprosy from the just sort of normal, everyday leprosy that, that wasn't contagious. Because they were all bunched together, they needed to protect the contagious, deadly leprosy from basically every other kind of leprosy. And so anyone who had something that they considered to be leprosy would have been absolutely and immediately isolated for the benefit of the many. But oh, if you had leprosy, how difficult must that have been for you? Anyone who's watched almost any TV at all about life in prison knows that it is solitary confinement that is like the worst form of punishment, to be isolated by yourself outside of human communication, much human conversation, certainly any human touch. People who are left in that state have their mental and spiritual and physical health deteriorate quickly. How much worse must it have been to be a leper in these days? To be isolated while at the same time immersed in a society all around you, to have people flooding you all the time but be ignored and avoided. This is, this is to starve at a banquet, to die of thirst while sitting at the foot of a fresh spring. And this is the life that every leper had to live. And who was to blame? Honestly, they, they just couldn't be allowed in crowds. They couldn't be allowed around people. Accidental touching might mean that other people get infected and other lives come to an end. For all of these reasons, lepers were not touched. They weren't allowed in society. They were often ostracized and forced to the outskirts, even of towns. And so when this leper shows up, the first thing that we would notice is his great boldness. He doesn't stretch out his hand. He seems to be a ways away from Jesus. We read that Jesus has to stretch out his hand to come to him. So he's being respectful of Jesus, but he is quite bold. There's a great crowd that's following him that we read in 8.1, and yet this leper risks going up in front of the crowd so that he might speak directly to Jesus. Their reaction could have been very bad. 
He's putting them all at risk. They would have probably shoot him away, probably told him that he has no business here, told him to get away from the rest of their, their, everybody else here is in danger because you are here. But Matthew doesn't record anyone else's reaction because there's only one person whose reaction actually matters. The concern of the people, their retorts, their rebuffs, their jeers, don't actually matter at all. What matters is Jesus' acceptance and kindness and grace toward him. And we would do well to remember that. When you find yourself in sin as a Christian, even as somebody who doesn't know Christ, don't worry about the the way in which other people might view you. Don't worry about the way in which other people might speak of you. Get to Jesus. It's a good thing to imitate. But even then, hear the words that this leper speaks to him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He does not demand that the Lord make him clean. He simply says, if you want to, if, if you will it, you are powerful enough to do it, I know that you can do it. There are all kinds of reasons why the Lord might not will it, reasons that are quite out of our consideration and quite out of our control. We, we might ask for healing ourselves from the Lord. He might grant it. He might not. We don't always know why he does what he does. If you will it, he says, It is not up for us to tell him what to do or demand the way that is best. It is up for us to simply ask, knock, and seek, knowing that our Father will always do what's best. And here the the leper simply acknowledges the lordship of Jesus, gives him full authority to do what he thinks is right. And Jesus shows him great compassion. He reaches out and touches him and speaks two small words Four in English, I will be clean. His compassion is shown immediately. There's no rebuke for this leper's boldness. There's no warning about caring for others. There's just immediate and perfect healing, or we might want to say cleansing, sanctifying. Beyond that, Jesus reaches out to touch this man. Before he's healed. What an act of compassion that must have been. This man wouldn't have been able to to have any physical touch by another human being since he found that he had leprosy. He would have been ostracized from his society, taken away from his family, unable really to have any sort of interaction with anyone at all. But Jesus reaches out to him, even though he is unclean, touches him on the hand. This, by all rights, is a great act of compassion, but ought to make Jesus unclean. But the miracle itself shows that Jesus sort of turns the tide of sin. Everyone else becomes unclean when they touch somebody who is leprous. But Jesus is so pure, so holy, so righteous, that it is impossible for him to be contaminated with sin, and instead he drives sin and disease away. Where there was once disease there is now healing. There's communion where there once was alienation. But then Jesus, in verse 4, does something weird. He tells him not only that he shouldn't speak of it, which is odd in and of itself, but then he says, you are to go and you are to offer the gift that Moses demanded. This gift, specifically related to leprosy being healed, was elaborate, detailed for us in Leviticus 14. This ceremony includes not only an inspection of the area that's been cleansed by a priest, 
but it includes several shavings over the course of eight days with accompanying washings, two birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, a branch of hyssop, an earthenware vessel, two male lambs, one ewe lamb, a grain offering, some oil, along with a willing priest and a trip, nowadays, to Jerusalem. No mention of a partridge in a pear tree, but I'm sure that Moses was going to get around to it at some point in time. The entirety of this elaborate thing was to say that this, this system that's been set up, the sacrificial system that's been set up to accept your good gift is here to signify that you have been fully received back into the people of God. That any restrictions that were found upon you because of what happened to you have been completely removed. Your relationship with God and your relationship to your fellow man has been completely and utterly restored. This is the very thing that Jesus wants him to do. This is a step of faith. You have been healed. Now go and do this thing that acknowledges that God is the one who has healed you. It acknowledges that, that you didn't come to this on your own. You didn't think about it and take some medicine and get better all because science told you you could. But rather, Jesus says, this is an acknowledgement that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who healed you. Go and offer the gift as proof to them, to the priest, to everyone, that God is the one who has healed you. Therefore, as Jesus heals him, he says, you need to be faithful to the word of Moses. And it is something along the lines of that simple. The leper's faithfulness is needed before he was healed. Yes, he has faith, but his act of faithfulness comes after, and it necessarily comes after. It couldn't come before. He couldn't offer this particular offering before Jesus arrives, before Jesus heals. He could not be counted among God's people. He could not be seen by the priest. He could not gift the appropriate gift because he was unclean. But now he is made clean. He's free in regards to the gift, the offering, the ceremony. Jesus has made him free and expects him to exercise that freedom. Or to reverse the terminology, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You could, you could, you know, you couldn't help but sin, but when it came to doing things that were right, you could give them or leave them. You could go out and practice them or you could, you could not worry about them at all. You were free in regard to righteousness. He said, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That is, now that you have been saved, now that Jesus has lifted the hindrance from your faithfulness, a faithfulness that you were unable to give before, now how can you do anything but be faithful? It is the response. The faithfulness is a response to the great gift that Jesus Christ has given to you. It is a response to healing. It is a response to a clean soul. It is a response to the, the very salvation that he offers to us. Friends, Jesus, for those who entrust themselves to him, who have seen the very work of Jesus Christ proclaimed before them, who know the work that the Spirit has done in convicting them of their sin and then relieving it through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who entrust themselves to that gospel. For those who believe upon Jesus, he has set you free and made you clean. He has taken away. Cleansed by the word of your confession, by the prayer of your supplication, by the water of baptism, you are clean. So friend, if he has made you clean, be faithful. 
The healing of Jesus drives our faithfulness. But secondly, the healing of Jesus ought to drive our humility. It ought to drive our humility. A Roman centurion is no fool. He has risen to a high rank in the Roman army because he's a serious man. And he's devoted to doing serious things. He also happens to be an enemy of the people of God. And not like a symbolic enemy. Not somebody who is attached to Rome and therefore is an enemy just because they're Roman, even though they don't do anything bad to you. The centurion is actually one who kind of does bad to you. He is the one who is guaranteed to watch over the Jews, to keep them under the rule of the Romans, under the oppression of the Romans. It is he who, when the Jews get feisty, angry, mobbish, who comes in to lay the hammer of Rome down to make sure that they understand their place. If there is any who would be considered an enemy of the people of God, the Roman centurion would be it. It's of interest, then, that Matthew records this particular interaction as one of the first interactions symbolizes much. Jesus, again, is not just talking when he says that you need to love your enemies. He means it. He demonstrates it almost immediately after the sermon when this man comes up to him and he immediately just responds positively to him. Before we get there, though, we start with this sort of wonderful confession. He says that my, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. If, if you're reading another version of the scriptures, it might say my son. The word is not the pure word son that we think of. It means child or servant. It can mean both. And so some versions take child, some versions take servant. I kind of like child because it makes a little bit more sense than, than just him coming to Jesus about his servant. But nevertheless, he comes to him, pleads with him. Jesus immediately, by the way, says, I will come and heal him. There's no hesitation. There's no repartee back and forth. There's no, you don't belong to the kingdom of God. Why should I do this? Jesus just immediately with compassion says, yes, let's go. You, you see the heart of Jesus to heal people. He, he immediately wants to give of himself to make others whole and right. But he is a serious man. And he immediately says this. Centurion says, listen, Basically, he says two things. One, I know what authority looks like. And because of that, I, I don't deserve to have you under my roof. He looks at Jesus and he says, you, you, you can't come to my house. Because I know, I think we should see what he says after this is the reason for it. Because I know what authority looks like. Not only do I exist under authority, but other men exist under my authority. And I know how authority works. I don't need to walk them through it. I speak to them. I say to one, go, and, and he goes because I'm an authority over him. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say, do this, and he does it. He says, I know how authority works. And so just, just speak. Why come all the way to my house? You can just speak. By some way, stories of the healings of Jesus. Perhaps the centurion has seen some of them himself. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He says, I've seen how diseases, I've seen how demons, I've seen how these things react to you. I know what authority looks like. I can see that you have authority. That authority means that you are great and mighty and powerful above, above me, above disease. I, I have authority over men, but you have authority over disease over paralysis. 
You have authority over demons. You, you don't need to come to my house, and I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. This Roman centurion shows up and calls him immediately Lord. Says volumes. And let us wonder again at Jesus' compassionate response first, but then his response in verse 10. He says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled. When we, when we talk about miracles, and sometimes when we think about how Jesus interacts with people, we, we rely so much because we want to uphold so firmly that Jesus was divine. And the miracles seem to prove it, so this is like in the realm of the divine. We want to talk about how this shows that Jesus is divine. And I, I, I think we need to hold that sort of in one hand. But Jesus isn't this sort of divine robot. When this guy comes forward and he says this, Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, that's pretty good. I knew you were going to say that from all eternity, though, so I'm not terribly astonished, frankly. This is not new news to me. But rather, he, he's perfectly human. He's, he's almost, almost, again, holding divinity in one hand, he's almost taken aback. He's like shocked for just a second. He stops and he says that he's, he, the text says that he marvels. He's, he's completely in wonder at this response. And then again, he does something surprising. He not only upholds this Roman centurion's faith, but he takes the time in the presence of the centurion and all of his followers around him to make this case. He says, many are going to come from the east and from the west. They will come into the kingdom of God. These Gentiles will come in to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This picture of the final supper that we get in Revelation, the, the wedding banquet at the end of days where we eat with all the saints of old as we sit there at the wedding of Jesus Christ in the church. And, and he says, many will come from there and they will eat with them because they will look like this Roman centurion who has faith, who understands exactly who I am who understands the, the goodness and the power and the authority that is inherent in Jesus. But those sons of the kingdom, and, and we today might almost want to put sons in quotation marks because they're not truly sons. Those sons of the kingdom, those people who think that they belong inside, they will be cast outside into utter darkness. They will be cast out there because they don't recognize as goodness or as power or as authority. They will question all of them on the basis of his healings, on the basis of him casting out demons. They will say, ah, good? You're not good. You, you drive out demons by Beelzebub. They'll say, power? Power, if you were truly powerful, you would take yourself down off the cross. Authority? Well, they will flat out question his authority. By whose authority do you say these things? The Roman centurion sees the power and authority in, of Jesus in his miracles, and it, it humbles him. He recognizes it, and it drives him to humility. For a centurion to call a lay Roman Lord is one thing. For him to call a random Jew Lord is something else completely. No one, though, is assured of their authority more than a two-year-old. I have, I have examples. I have examples. When you tell a two-year-old that they cannot do something, they are assured that you 
are pathetically wrong and that they are assured to do it because they can go up and do it right now. Can't you see, Dad? What happens when they are told no again and they're shown no is they fall on the ground and they weep and they gnash their teeth. And that's exactly what happens here. They are cast, these people who want to question the authority and the power and the goodness of Jesus, they are cast outside and they weep and they gnash their teeth. Their gnashing of their teeth is not because of pain. The gnashing of their teeth is because of anger and because of frustration. They gnash their teeth because they're prideful. No one gets to do this to us. No one gets to kick us out. It's our right We can question your authority and your goodness and your power all we want to. You don't get to do this to us. It's nothing but pride manifesting itself as anger because they don't believe. But the healing of Jesus ought to drive us in humility to trust him, to trust his authority, to trust his goodness, and to trust his power. Thirdly, The healing of Jesus drives our worship. The story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law doesn't seem like it has too much to commend it toward worship, I I suppose. It doesn't seem like it. Obviously, she's serving him. But as the pinnacle of these three miracles, it kind of wraps them all up nicely. We'll see how it does this in just a second. But there's a couple things about this text that I want to point out. We talked this morning in Sunday school about contradictions and the the way in which the Bible is written sometimes makes people think that there's contradictions everywhere. And I was thinking about that this week as I was going through my Sunday school stuff. And then here this text came up and and when you read it in, in response to what Luke writes of the same incident, it's easy to hear what Luke says and to hear what Matthew says and say, oh, you see there's contradictions in Scripture. This is the exact same thing that so many people think are contradictions. Listen to what Luke says about the same passage, the same incident. And he arose, Jesus arose, left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now that's not a contradiction. Simon and Peter, just two different names. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, there's a lot of differences between those two texts. It's not just the name. In Matthew, we have no report of a request. Jesus just walks into the house, grabs her hand, and heals her. In Matthew... Not only is there no request, but he does actually take her hand. In Luke, he sort of stands over her, above her. In Matthew, she is healed and serves only Jesus. You'll notice what it says there in verse 15. She began to serve him, singular. In Luke, she serves everybody. What we should leave with, though, is not that these are a bunch of contradictions, but we should leave with the idea that each writer took the exact same incident and desired to highlight different things. I don't know exactly why Luke chose to highlight what he did, but I think that we've got good reasons to imagine why Matthew highlighted what he wanted to highlight. Why does Matthew have Jesus not asking or not being asked to heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law? Why does he just go up to her? It's certainly not because Matthew doesn't want Jesus to ever do this. This is the only time in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus will perform a miracle like this without a request for it to be done. 
Every other time in the Gospel of Matthew, when he heals someone, they ask to be healed or other people ask for them to be healed. This is the only time that no request is made. I think it's simply to say this. In a passage, and passages that we've had where Jesus is so clearly painted as somebody who has compassion and mercy, even if they asked, what Matthew is trying to say is, even if they asked, it didn't matter. Jesus already had in mind the desire to heal her. He didn't need to be asked. Jesus, again, shows his compassion and his care. He longs to make people whole, to fix them. But why take her hand? Why not stand over her? There was a well-known taboo in this time of the Jews that the hands of Jewish women were not to be touched by other men. But Jesus has no such time for taboos. He just reaches down and grabs her hand, a sign of compassion, but a sign of also equality a sign of making her just as important as the others who have come before, including that leper who he touched when he shouldn't have touched him. Why serve Jesus? Well, because that's what serving the rest of them was. To serve the people of God is to serve Jesus. To serve the body of Christ is to serve Christ. Jesus is so close to his believers, even here, so early in his ministry, he's so close with them that to help them is to help him. To serve them is to serve him. He identifies with his people. Now, in a great many respects, this miracle is just like the others that we've read this morning. Jesus acts, and then there is a response. In the first miracle, he commands the response. He says, you are to go and make an offering exactly the same as what Moses has commanded you to. In the second his miracles are the source of the response that the centurion gives. The centurion quite clearly has seen other miracles. He knows of other miracles, and therefore he knows of the authority of Jesus. And the third, his miracle allows for it. She is only able to serve him and them because Jesus has been there and helped. There is a nice progression in these miracles for those who want to see it. This is again what these miracle stories must do. They tell us about his deity, they tell us about his compassion, but they also tell us about our salvation. The tabernacle or the temple had different courts that allowed different people into them. As a leper, you weren't even allowed to be near people, so you weren't allowed to come into sometimes whole cities. They would wall you off and tell you, you can't come in. But certainly the temple, you were not allowed to enter any of the courts. The largest court around the temple would have been the court of the Gentiles, where Gentile people were allowed in, but no further. The general court would have been inside of that, where Jews only were allowed to enter. So women could have gone, Jewish women could have gone further than the Gentiles, but they still couldn't enter into the temple proper. And then inside the Holy of Holies, only one priest one time a year was allowed inside there. Jesus seems to, as it were, be working from the outside in, bringing people nearer and nearer to God, those who are furthest away and working his way closer, those who are outside the temple, healing them and drawing them, those who are barely inside the temple complex, healing them and drawing them, those who still have to stand outside, healing them and drawing them. Jesus, in his kindness, welcomes all. And one day he will open up the tabernacle or the temple for all to enter. 
The veil that divides the Holy of Holies from everything else will be ripped, allowing all to enter in. Full access to the very throne of grace, full access to the seat of mercy is allowed through the work, the blood, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Jesus are here to fit us for the worship of God, that we might enter in before him, to stand before our God, might be a little bit of an odd place to go, so kind of hang with me for a minute. But Leviticus 21 says this to the priests of Aaron. The Aaronic priests, and specifically the men who were priests, couldn't all just enter in when they wanted to. Aaron's line specifically was set aside for the, the actual working of the priesthood inside the temple. They weren't just there to move the tabernacle, but they were gifted as priests to work inside the temple and inside the tabernacle. But not all the sons of Aaron were equipped for this. God tells Aaron this through Moses when he says this to Moses in Leviticus 21. Speak, speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near. He may eat of the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. This is even in the line of Aaron. Blemishes keep you. You're unclean. You're unholy in a sense. You cannot enter in. This was your inheritance. You didn't get land like the people of Dan and Asher and Judah and Benjamin. You got this. And now, because you're born with a deformity or you received a deformity somewhere in your life, now you can't enter in. There's a separation. God is so holy that these deformities can't be present among him. And you can look at that and you can say, how horrible and severe that must be. But this is why Jesus comes and heals people. He takes away their blemishes so that by the Old Testament requirements, by the New Testament requirements, by any requirements at all, they will be made holy and righteous to be able to enter in before God to worship him forever and ever. And this is why Isaiah is mentioned here. We typically think of this verse, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases from Isaiah 53 as a passage about the death of Jesus Christ. But here it is applied because his life and his death were all purposed to do the same thing. To remove all those things that keep us from God. To remove all those things that would make us unacceptable before God. To remove all those things that would keep us from wholesomeness, completeness, fullness before God. As the end of Leviticus says, it is the Lord who sanctifies them. And here the Lord is doing just that. The lame and the blind, 
those who are outside because of ethnicity or gender, the Lord sanctifies them all, that all might come to the throne of grace by and through the work of Jesus Christ. Dr. Hagner, a commentator on the book of Matthew, says this, speaking specifically of leprosy, but I think it applies across the board here. There's a sense in which leprosy is an archetypal fruit of the original fall of humanity. It leaves its victims in a most pitiable state, ostracized, helpless, hopeless, despairing. It is the ultimate purpose of Jesus to heal every malady without exception. Friends, he will. We're told in this passage that that's precisely what he does. They bring him. It doesn't matter who they bring him. He heals him. It doesn't matter what their disease is. He heals them. Nothing too difficult. He heals them. No demon too strong. He casts it out. He is able and willing to heal. Friends, we must hold on to this. It's not our present reality yet. Even if grace pulls you through some issues, even if he heals your cancer, even if he removes your fever, even if he restores all of the functions that you used to have here, you must await a better work. And that day is coming. Jesus will make you perfect in all your ways that you might serve the Lord forever. And that is the point of the gospel. His grace comes to you to heal you, to make you right, to make you whole, to make you perfect, to make you complete. Not as an end in itself, but so that you might be faithful and worship, you might serve the Lord. We work not to earn the grace of our God, not because it merits our having mercy poured upon us. We work because the Lord has given us cleansing, wholeness. He has taken away the fever of our sins. So let us serve him with full hearts and in full faith trust that all the best is still yet to come. Let's pray. Father, what good you have for us Let not these trials and worries of life blind us to your kindness and good intentions for us. Here there will be suffering and trial. There will be deficiency and strife. And yet the good day will come when such things will find their ends. When the veil will be lifted and we shall see the Son as he truly is and we will be made new again. We pray for that day, Father, while giving you praise for the work that has already been done. We have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ. May we cling forever to his work and serve him with zeal always. We ask these things in the name of our great and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, Be Thou My Vision.